Hey, everybody, you may notice that we are in your podcast inbox on Thursday afternoon and not Friday morning. That is because we have shaken up when the show comes out. So from here on out, we are Thursday afternoons, not Friday mornings. And with that, let's go. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm a reporter here at TC. I am joined by Natasha Moscarenas, one of our early stage reporters. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm slightly insecure that everyone is sick of us. But other than that, solid feeling a six out of 10 right now. <laughs> yeah, this is the most equity we've ever done in a week. So if it's too much, we'll notice in the analytics and it'll be fine. Uh, we also have Danny Crichton back on the pod. Danny, how was your one day hiatus? Uh, it was great. I uh, have been able to read a bunch of SEC regulations in my one hour of vacation yesterday. Great. I mean, a whole hour. That's decadent. I mean, how dare you, sir? In 2020, I feel like that's quite the, uh, quite the reprieve. Uh, okay, speaking of, well, actually, no, we're not doing that first, Danny. We're doing SEC second. We have to start with TikTok. Um, yet again, everyone, we're back on the TikTok beat because the CEO has stepped down. Kevin Mayer, uh, formerly of Disney, I think, dropped it. And Danny, you had a hypothesis about why he would be stepping down now. It's because the deal is effectively wrapped, in your view? What's going on? Well, I mean, you know, what, what, talk about 100 days of, of complete chaos for the guy. I mean, he was at Disney for, what, a decade and a half, led the purchase of Marvel and Lucasfilm and a bunch of other major media properties for Disney and also launched Disney Plus. I mean, uh, and truly was like a senior exec doing super well, was expected to take over, but Bob Chappick, who runs the parks and rec division of, of Disney, took his place uh, in the succession. And so he left and he, he stumbled on TikTok, like many older generation folks do. And uh, he was like, this seems cool. The kids are all on it. You know, tens and tens of millions of people seem to be joining all the time. I'm going to go run that globally. And what's happened in the 100 days that he was there, which has to be one of the shortest, I mean, you know, they're, they're switching CEOs faster than Japanese prime ministers these days, apparently. You know, China, U.S. is having a huge kerfuffle over trade. Um, his role got diminished, you know, so, yes. so with the Trump administration sort of block on TikTok and Nahendra Modi, who also blocked it in India, you know, the role that was originally positioned as global CEO outside of China has become like Washington, D.C., government relations lobbyist for like Maryland. I mean, yeah, it's become the, the coffee boy for the Trump administration just being kind of bullied around and told to do things. That's right. And and the role is just much smaller, right? So there's going to be multiple CEOs in different countries. He's now fighting on multiple continents. I mean, this is one he, what he signed up for. Um, what, what's shocking about this is one, it was only 100 days. And most of this was predictable given the time that he actually signed up. So I'm, I'm not sure like who didn't do due diligence or whether like the executive recruiter was just like, hey, this is a great deal. This is a great gig. Here's your money. Good luck. And he was like, oh, I'm so excited for this. And then found out that the job was not what he expected. But it's nice to know that even the most senior execs and deal-making aficionados have the exact same problems with figuring out what the job really means as everyday workers. Yeah, I'm less surprised that he took it, I guess, listening to you talk. Because if you go back through the, the filings we've seen for the different companies, TikTok's growth in the US in terms of like its monthly active users has been so astronomical as to be like, who wouldn't want to go join a, a rocket ship that's already halfway to the moon, right? Just get on the rocket ship, arrive at the moon, look brilliant, ta-da. I mean, Natasha, I don't know how your friend groups have gone, but like everyone in my friend groups now just texts TikToks to everyone else. Like they, they're a constant, they're as popular as tweets now in our... SMS-based convos in terms of content. So I, I've been shocked by its growth. I think the, the moment I knew TikTok was here to stay and was 
honestly a threat to Facebook and Instagram was when I started seeing my Facebook feed and Instagram feed calling back TikToks. And when Twitter all of a sudden became like one week late on TikTok trends. And I mean, I almost downloaded TikTok because of that. I didn't still because I still don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> and even though I'm 23 years old, I still think I'm too old for it. So I, I think I've always thought of it as really big. On the point of him leaving, I mean, three months ago, it was, like I said, it was very clearly a Facebook competitor, which was going through, which has been going through antitrust conversations for so long. There was no po- like way in which he thought it was a non-controversial role to yeah. take. I'll, I'll, but that is, but I won't, I'm like kind of surprised that they didn't do the proper due diligence too. Well, breaking news, literally as we were sitting down getting the mics turned on and the cameras, because we're not back on YouTube, little plug there. The first news of a reported bid for the for either TikTok US, Danny, or TikTok Global, I forget which one it is, but the ex-China stuff from Oracle for a supposed $20 billion. We didn't have time to verify this before the show, so sorry that we're kind of like riffing on some tweets, but like this seems to be a pretty legitimate bid. It's in keeping with the size be expected. Uh, I didn't think Oracle was going to get this far. Uh, I actually wagered eating Danny's sweatshirt over the Oracle possibility in a post, which I'm now regretting quite a lot. Um, but here we are. Also, also, <laughs> news, I don't do that. And to be clear, I like my sweatshirt, so I don't want you to eat it. That's where we are in the world. Trump I mean, wants I, Alex to eat your sweatshirt, Danny. You know, uh, two, three weeks ago, I wrote a post called, you know, beware bankers selling TikTok. And I, I think this is still the case. We'll know tomorrow. I mean, by the time you listen to the show, we might already have an answer. So we're going to be totally wrong. But in my view, I, I think that the, the t- uh, Oracle bid is really just a way to try to drive Microsoft's price higher. And Microsoft, I think, is the only real competitor for, for the company at all. Yeah. Microsoft, $25 billion is my guess. Oracle, 20 just feels like the wrong company and the wrong price. Also, I don't want to eat clothes. So that's my take on that. Uh, can we move on from TikTok? Is there anything else here that we have to get to that I'm missing? I think that's it. I, I just want this to be done. Frankly, I, I'm ready to move on with my life and maybe re-download TikTok. Microsoft owns it, so I'll feel more secure in using it. Okay. Let's go talk about the SEC because late last night or late Wednesday night, I should say. Um, I know this is hot stuff. Uh, this is really exciting. This is this is a big deal. And <laughs> if you don't agree with us, you're the major- you're the majority. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, New York Stock Exchange's plan for a new IPO alternative has won a green light from the SEC. It's a headline, and uh, essentially what this means, Danny, is that if you do a direct listing now you will be, in some circumstances, allowed to sell shares at the market open price that is set through the normal price discovery mechanisms along with other shareholders in the company. But instead of you know selling a block of shares at a set price before like a normal IPO, you can just let the market decide the price, sell equity there. And so you can effectively raise money and direct list. Is that your read, Mr. Crichton? Yeah, that's correct. You know, in the current model, um, the SEC has not allowed direct listings to raise money. So that's why we've seen Spotify and a couple other companies go public because they didn't need to raise capital on the public markets when they were going through the direct listing process. The exception recently was Palantir. You know, this week we saw the S1. We talked about it on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. I don't even know what day of the week it is. I don't even know what month it is. But but given the news, Palantir was doing an S1, lost $500 million in the last cycle. And uh, that was surprising because you can't raise capital as part of these processes, which is one reason why a lot of folks could sort of interpreted their debt raise a month ago of hundreds of millions of dollars along that line. Same with Airbnb. We saw them raise a lot of debt. They've also been in discussions to do a direct listing. 
and I think it's something similar. So, so this option from the the SEC approving the New York Stock Exchange's plan, we expect mm-hmm. Nasdaq, I would imagine, to do something very They've similar as well. Filed. Yep. They filed, I think, th- this morning or or two days ago. You know, th- this is just going to give another cheaper way to go public. And I think, you know, for the SEC in particular, they've made a huge priority to sort of help all these private companies that have been stuck, you know, on the private markets find easier and faster ways to go public that are cheaper. Yeah. And this boils back down to the Bill Gurley SPAC letter. Natasha, did you get a chance to read that? Because I thought it was a pretty interesting document. I did. So I thought it was helpful. It kind of broke down the multiple ways to go public into three different doors, SPAC, traditional IPO listing, and the direct listing dynamic. But that was also pre this Wednesday night news. And in a very like expected Bill Gurley fashion, it was very anti-traditional IPO. And to me, I feel like the news that broke yesterday on direct listings becoming broader is even further displacing the traditional IPO. Like the traditional IPO isn't as interesting anymore, but we should probably talk about that document slowly and surely. Well, okay. But let's, let's talk about what, about what's changed because Airbnb, Asana, Palantir, right? Effectively, they were either going to direct list or are direct listing. They raised money pre S1. And so they essentially raised private capital, usually via debt facility, maybe convertible debt, direct list, and then trade, and then figure out the debt stuff later. That was, I think, the best way to approach the markets after reading Bill Gurley's doc pre this new thing. But now I feel like if they could do it again, they would probably do things a little bit differently with this new format. Bill Gurley's memo, to your point, Natasha, was relatively positive on SPACs because of the low cost of capital and the fact that there wasn't so much of a giveaway to, as he frames it, bankers' friends, effectively. But I, I wonder, Danny, if you think that the SPAC option loses luster now that we have this amended direct listing option coming. I don't know if it loses luster. I mean, again, it's a marketplace. I think it's amazing to have multiple diverse options to choose to go public. You know, the IPO is under attack because the cost of an IPO has just it's skyrocketed. I mean, I think Gurley's most consistent point is to show just how much the percentage has changed uh, of the difference between what the public values a company and what the investment bankers chose as the price of the company at the IPO. And uh, this year was a record. It was actually, I think, what, 31% off from the market price. And that has steadily increased over time. Like the, the bankers are actually getting worse at pricing uh, shares year after year after year. So why, why deal with people who don't know what they're doing? I think SPACs have an interesting opportunity. You know, one of the things that Gurley brings up, and also we're, we're actually talking to a SPAC insider, the SPAC insider, later today. But one of the interesting things with SPAC is a lot of the folks who are raising these SPACs have huge kind of publicity machines. They're big hedge fund managers, big PE firms. It's not just that they can put you public. They can actually get a lot of investors around the table to get excited about this yeah. new issue. So, you know, where I disagreed a little bit with, with Gurley, though, was, you know, he sort of has this view of, you know, ultimately the market takes account of like the revenues, the actual business model of these companies. No one cares how you go public. And I, I still have the sense of, it matters that the numbers look good the first time people get an impression of your company. I do think there's a residual impression that is laid that like if the first thing you hear about a company on the public markets is, God, what a disaster, it declined by 40%. Like, sure, over five, 10 years, people forget, but it could be years before people kind of lose that like tinge of negativity. I kind of have a different perspective on this because, you know, I used to think of the IPO pop as a marker of success, as you know, this awesome headline you get to post about a company, it's good news. 
But then that really speedily went to they just mispriced and now this is all the money left on the table. And so when I think about what will matter down the road, I, I guess I'm more on Bill Gurley's side and like I don't think I'll care or know which companies went which way 10 years from now. I'll just know how healthy their financials were at the moment. I don't know. I think the pop was just very confusing and it gave people a narrative that wasn't exactly helpful in understanding how a company actually should be valued. I, I think ironically, I mean, you know, we talk about the Robinhood economy a lot on this show, but one of the challenges is that as more and more retail investors are flooding the market, the, the pops actually are starting to become more and more valuable. It's not the people doing fundamental analysis on Wall Street who, you know, mostly ignore this sort of stuff and are going back to basics. It's like, you know, Tesla's the hottest, you know, traded stock in the country because it has a lot of publicity, because it's very exciting, because it's growing and driving and, and the volatility is really high. I, I think we have to be careful of, you know, forgetting that the pop matters to a lot of folks who may not, you know, focus on stock trading as much as others. It's also really bad if your share price goes down, right? That's not great uh, for, for anybody involved. In these direct listings, though, with this option to sell shares during the traditional uh, price discovery mechanisms process, whatever, uh, there won't be lockup periods. So if the shares start high and then they decline, you know, fuck you. There's not going to be protections. There's no banks going to be under underwriting this, stabilizing the shares. It's just going to trade. And, you know, in, in a way, it feels very, very capitalistic in a positive sense to just have it go out there and float. Just, okay, let's see what happens now. Here's the company. Here are the numbers. Let's go forth. I, it feels pure to me in a way that I actually appreciate. And I feel like after being on the non-Bill Gurley side, because I listen to CEOs more than investors about IPOs, I feel vaguely radicalized in the last couple of weeks on this issue. So I'm actually joining Team Natasha on the Bill Gurley SPAC IPO issue. Danny. I, I think uh, the other thing to not forget is, you know, most of these private companies are, you know, secondarily traded, right? You know, there are already huge numbers of transactions happening on these companies. They have price discovery. We just don't see it in the public markets. And so to my mind, it's not so much like, you know, none of the shares were ever traded. Now they're suddenly traded 9, 8, you know, 8.30 a.m. You know, Eastern time. It's more like, you know, all that stuff that was happening behind the scenes is now just becoming public. It's just a transition. And I, I, I think that's where, you know, we are in 2020. And I, I do think that that's maybe Gurley's best point is like, you know, how, how is it possible that we're still doing this model that made sense back in the 1960s? You know, computers have happened. We have right. an ability to actually select a price using the actual market matching mechanism. Like, why are we not doing this? It, it's nuts. And to me, the IPO... I think it's going to go the way of the dodo. I mean, I, I think it's going to be extraordinarily rare in two to three years to go to the classic IPO now that you can do the capital fundraise. But unless these first uh, direct listings with capital sales suck, and if that happens, it could, could put a cap in it. But I don't think that's going to happen, but that's the only risk that I see. Now, uh, we're going to move on to a couple of deals, one of which is Desktop Metal, which is going public via a SPAC. I actually got to contribute to this story a little bit for TC. So the SPAC is Trine, I believe, Trine, not Trine, yeah, Trine. Trine Acquisition Corp, which will merge with Desktop Metal to create a company with an equity value of around $2.5 billion, about a billion more than the company's last private valuation of $1.5. And there's, this is a little technical, so someone correct me if I'm wrong, but the SPAC is bringing $300 million, and then a pipe, which is a private investment in public equity, is going to bring another $275 million at $10 a share. So I believe, Danny, Natasha, back me up. It should debut at about ten dollars a share because that's what the pipe put capital in. Ad is my read. It, it's it's uh, it gets really complicated. So you know, obviously, uh, SPACs are oftentimes not large enough to actually just full on buy out a company. And so to sort of fix that problem, or at least fix part of the problem, a lot of SPACs are actually going with pipes, which are public investments in private equity. 
And, you know, all SPACs are priced at 10 bucks a share. So that's why you're seeing this price point. It actually has nothing ah, to do with the company at all. All units are generally are, are 10 bucks. And then with, with most SPACs, although this is changing, there's warrant coverage of about 15%, similar yeah. to the green shoe. So out of the money, warrant coverage options, warrant coverage, which, you know, is priced at 11.50. So we, we don't know what it'll debut at. We have a sense of it's 2.5 billion. That isn't technically the cost of desktop metal because the actual value of the SPAC has to be deducted. And there's also transaction fees roughly on the order of 15%, uh, both the IPO fee for the SPAC itself, plus the acquisition fee. Both of those are somewhere between five and 8%. So it'll probably be more like 2 billion if you wanted to value desktop metal more officially. But it depends though on the SPAC setup and what they manage to negotiate and all that. That's right. And technically, uh, because it's a SPAC, it's an S1. So we could look. We have a lot of the data in front of us. I just don't want to read it because it's a lot of pages. I've, I've read enough SEC fucking, I'm sorry, SEC <laughs> filings. This is a G-rated show. SEC effing rated <laughs> filings over the last week that I'm done reading S1s. The, the big detail here that I want to talk about, which kind of also talk, references what we were talking earlier about liquidity, was this company was founded in 2015 and is a Massachusetts company. Two points for them because it took five years for a potential exit. And I mean, I think this kind of exit matters so much more in a place like Massachusetts. It was Burlington. It's not Boston, but it matters so much more there than in San Francisco. And so seeing it was also another sign of how things are changing, how maybe a traditional IPO process doesn't work because, you know, some companies are now like, maybe I'll just flirt with liquidity earlier in my lifetime than I would have. The traditional, I think, is 12 years to exit. So that was a cool detail. Okay, so I just Google this. Burlington, though, is like in the Boston. Yeah, it's in the conurbation. Boston. Right? Yeah, people sorry. have lived in Boston. <laughs> well, well, Natasha, you did, but I did. You, but you, like, those, I'm not going to count it. You're the classic stereotype of a Boston yeah. university student who never leaves like the Fenway area <laughs> and um, Boston College. That is not some, based in Boston. That is some niche shade right there, and I really respect it. But this brings me back to the girly uh, memo because he said that there's so many SPACs now in the market that they're actually competing with one another to get access to deals. And so it's lowering the cost of capital. So I wonder if Danny's numbers, while historically correct, will actually come down as people have to compete for access. And especially if this, what do you call it? What, SPAC'd debut or whatever the hell you want to call it? If this goes well, I wonder if we'll see other younger companies of a similar age to desktop metal actually approach the markets to Natasha's point. And if so, that could be awesome, but I'm also very tired. So hopefully they do it next week, not this week, because I don't think I, I could take on anymore. I think it'll be interesting to see what's also disclosed with these acquisitions. So, you know, obviously the S1 has already been filed. That's Prime Acquisition Corp. The, the problem is, is desktop metal doesn't file an S1. So for instance, we do a ton of work around calculating shareholder returns. You know, they've raised a huge amount of money, 430 million over eight rounds. Yep. Who made money here? I, I actually don't know we're actually going to have that data anymore. Whereas like when we were talking about Snowflake, we were actually able to calculate almost to the penny for a lot of these VC investors. So we'll, we'll see what kind of transparency we're going to get with a lot of these deals. But I, I do think one of the options on why SPACs are attractive is, at least from the company's perspective, they have to release less information about their financial history, their principal shareholders, a bunch of other details than they would have if they went through the S1 directly themselves. Now, I think, I think aside from the detail that Desktop Metal had some layoffs in April, I think we're done with SPACs. I think, yes, we're done. No more SPACs. We will never talk about SPACs again on the show again. Until next week. But <laughs> Until I think Monday. Or tomorrow in another special episode when, when TikTok is spacked. No, Danny, don't, <laughs> don't curse say me. It. Yeah, don't bro. Speak if TikTok is spacked, you have to eat two sweatshirts. I only own one. I, no, I you just... have to re-eat it. You have to regurgitate <laughs> the sweatshirt and, and re-eat like a wolf. No. You live in New York. You have more than one sweatshirt because it's cold there. So don't start. 
Two, I didn't say that in a post headline. I said one sweatshirt, Oracle. Get it right. Now, we're going to grab the show by the horns and yank it back in the private markets where we prefer to stay because things are much more whimsical and fun. And uh, we have a couple of funny rounds. And I would like to start with news that shocked me, which is Phoenix raising more money seemingly minutes after the last time I heard about them raising money in that Sequoia kerfuffle, as it were. But uh, talk us through it. Yeah. So Phoenix extended its Series B again with a $30 million investment from Lightspeed Venture Partners and American Express Ventures. What Alex was alluding to earlier was a couple months ago, Sequoia left its Phoenix investment on the table, basically giving it $20 million in free capital based on a conflict of interest it had with Stripe. After that, Phoenix raised another $10 million, is now raising $30 million. And per Richie Cerna, their CEO, they raised $96 million to date, and 90 of that million has been in the last year, which is insane. Why, why is it all a Series B? Why not just call it something new? Why not just call it a Series C? I feel like extension rounds, as we've talked about a little bit, are just cool now. I don't know why not a Series C. I would love for that question to be answered. But all that I really got on what the money will be used for is that they're going to try and double their staff of 85 people by mid-2021. And they needed $30 million more million for that? <laughs> I, I don't um, understand. The, the yeah. math doesn't make any sense. Because like, companies of larger than that have raised smaller rounds than that and not needed that much cash. Danny, if they didn't reprice the shares, I get why the Series B persists. But certainly, if they're months and months down the road with lots of growth, they wouldn't want to sell $30 million in equity at, the, at an old price, right? Because that would be liquidity unconscious, right? Well, we don't know the price, right? We don't know the valuation. It could be an extraordinarily high valuation. Um, arguably it was, right? I mean, it was one of the most popular companies in the last year. So I, I can imagine that the price is extremely high. They took very little dilution on the first tranche. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yes, it sounds great to want to reprice and, and make more money, but only a couple of months later, they may not have the results to be able to pull that off, right? And, and to do a full fundraise at a new price and figure a bunch of stuff out is a lot harder than hey, let's just open up the round a little bit more, take a little bit more dilution and keep on going. We don't know. So uh, to me, it, it's not totally shocking. Certainly, I think it's growing rapidly from everything that I've ever been told. So I think of it as it's not a negative story that it is doing an extension round. And that's been the case for a lot of the, the COVID-related you know, rounds we've seen over the last six months. So, so how fast is it growing, Natasha? Is it growing quickly? Do we have revenue numbers? What was the company willing to share in this new investment? We don't have revenue, revenue growth, valuation, or profitability. But boo, we do. Boo. Why? I was like, how do I say it without smiling? But ideally, I would love to see those numbers. So if Phoenix changes its mind, they know our emails pretty well now. I think the number that Phoenix has been pushing as, as of, I think, last month or a couple weeks ago is that its payments volume on its service has grown 4.5 times from Q2 2019 to Q2 2020, which they're kind of using as a way to describe how its customers have been growing. Richie said that their customers have never dipped, so they've never lost customers month over month. But that's kind of all the color I got on that. We just know that there's more transactions happening amid more customers on the platform over but, a year. But unlike Stripe, they don't charge per transaction fees because they're a SaaS business that provides payment backend as a service versus a payment processing company. So the payment volume doesn't directly correlate to revenue growth. It definitely doesn't. I think the one part of their revenue is that they have a sliding fee that they make money right. on based yeah. off of aggregate volume of transactions that happen. I don't have more details on that, but... 
I, I think as they have more <laughs> payment volume, they hit higher tiers. It's, it's like a progressive tax system. Um, right. So it, it gives much lower cost at higher volumes. So they don't have the churn problem typical of Stripe and some other companies where your best customers sort of leave because the fees Got start it. to become very, very significant. You know, they have a much more linear function so or sublinear um, yeah, pricing right. model. And it's SaaS, right? So it's recurring. So you're not dependent on the U.S. economy and what's going on macro. You have a set contract fee based on total volume. And Alex, I know we talked about this a little yesterday privately, but it made more sense considering e-commerce booming. Can you add a little bit of color on that? Yeah. So, you know, just talking about this uh, on a back channel, about you were writing the story. We were thinking about payment volume for the country and, uh, and where Phoenix might be. And I was thinking just my personal thoughts, because Phoenix isn't really aimed at bringing payments into mom and pop brick and mortar stores, uh, which probably took the biggest hit from COVID-19. And maybe if they had more e-commerce customers, which has done quite rather well during COVID-19, they might have not gotten punched very hard by COVID and a change in spending habits. And therefore, maybe their volume persisted or maybe even grew more than expected. I don't, I'm not going to say they had a COVID tailwind. I don't know enough, but certainly just thinking about what we know about the company, it doesn't feel like they probably got kneecapped by the economic changes that we're seeing. Sure. Speaking of growth, talk to us about Mural, which raised a Psycho Series B round. Yeah, Psycho is a good word. <laughs> yeah, I like this company. So I, I, so I, I know, I used to work with a guy who works there. And so he was like, yo, let's get coffee. Me, you and the CEO. So we were just chatting a couple of weeks ago on a Friday afternoon, just kicking, just kicking it. And then like, 20 minutes passes in the email. I'm like, yeah, we raised 118 million. I'm like, where was this? <laughs> like, we were just talking. You buried the lead. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's a cool company. I talked to, to Mural early this year when they raised, I think it was a $23 million Series A. And they had been a capital efficient business. They do kind of like online whiteboarding and collaboration software for, for teams, either remote or in office. And they had grown really capital efficiency, efficiently, sorry, on the back of customers like IBM and they had done well and they'd raised some money to build out their go-to-market function and, and really build out an enterprise sales force. And I'm like, cool, I got this really efficient firm, reasonably quick growth, some big seven-figure accounts, raise some money. I'll talk to them in 18 months and then we'll see what happens. And then ba-boom, COVID hits and everyone goes remote and demand for this type of service that Mural offers goes bonkers. And so all of a sudden, I think their growth just, you know, hockey stick. And uh, so they put together a $118 million Series B, which is not a Series B. It's an IPO, effectively, in terms of scale, led by inside partners with participation from Tiger Global, uh, the Slack Fund, World Innovation Lab, and uh, a couple of angels that you know, like Qualtrics' Brian Smith and Allison Pickens from Gainsight, former COO there. And their ARR has tripled year over year, and their MAUs have skyrocketed. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool story. I, I, I like the company. The CEO is fun, uh, Mariano person to talk to. And uh, it's a company that was doing its own thing before and then caught a tailwind and is now going to try to double down on what it does well. So I dig it. It's a cool round. Is it fair to say it's similar to Asana? Or not similar, but is it like a feature that Asana, Asana already offers? Or is this like something you see being the size of Asana one day? I think a lot of services have a basic kind of whiteboarding function where you can collaborate with people and, and draw things. But I don't think they have what this company is offered. I mean, I'm trying to avoid their buzzwords like the imagination economy and stuff like that. But they're... no, that's not a word. That's not that's a, a phrase. phrase. Please tell me that's not a phrase. I th uh, I'm that reaching the back. That sounds like head. what TikTok is going to have in its press release when Oracle takes them over. Oracle leads in you know the imagination economy. Uh, <laughs> blah 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 blah. 
No, I mean, I, I look. I think I think they're in the same class. I, I actually had a, a prep call for our disrupt uh, panel on the future of work from home and remote tools with a bunch of VCs. You know, one of the big questions is is you know just how many productivity tools can and one human use in a day. Ural obviously is in the productivity space. It allows for collaboration across teams in the whiteboarding category. It seems to be the winner now, and I think one of the reasons they raised this is it almost feels like a soft background. It's it's almost a a statement to a lot of competitors, and they do have a lot of competitors, many of which we have covered on TechCrunch, to say, you know, F you, A-holes, uh, I'm trying to keep this G-rated, but F you, G, you know, A-holes, you, we've raised 120 million bucks, and, uh, you know, we've got the, the bank to go and knock you out of the market. You know, uh, given the amount of sheer money raised, my question is, is like, are they even at the same valuation as Asana? I mean, Asana so- was 1.2 billion. Yeah. So I, I asked about the dollar amount because my spidey sense went tinkling. I'm like, does this look like a weird private equity round kind of? So it is a minority investment, I confirm. So certainly it is still a, a company owned and operated by the founders and so forth. And by the way, it was imagination work, not imagination economy. I just double checked that. I shouldn't I shouldn't slander libel, whatever it is them by getting that wrong. Um, I think but they that's do have a lot better. Of competitors. I think it, I feel more comfortable with that. I'm okay I, I do with too, that. which the is why is I corrected. <laughs> Uh, no, I I love to see companies that were at a kind of an angle to how other startups operated do well. Like I've been talking to Cloudinary, which has been bootstrapped forever, and how they're dealing with COVID and their customer base changing and their growth expectations and all that. So it's fun to see businesses that, that were a bit different do well. And I think it's this is part of the, the larger story we're all trying to figure out, which is what is actually going on in the economy today and what's different than it was six months ago. Because for the longest time, for 10 years, we were just in this weird unicorn buildup. Everything was pretty much the same. It just got more and more extreme. And then the snow globe got shaken really, really hard. And now we're trying to figure out where the the snow will land. But Mural certainly, it broke my no funding rounds rule for until disrupt by being enormous. So anyways, I think that's it, guys. I think this is the end of the fourth show of the week which means that we are now done and Chris gets our producer has to get to work uh, making this sound good. But we really appreciate everyone for tuning in this week. It's been really fun to see the numbers. Uh, We're doing our best. We're really glad that you're here with us and we're really enjoying doing this. So we're back Monday morning. Stay cool. So (laughs) the Palo Alto Hills are filled with the sounds of specs. Well, there's our blooper. Are you VC Braggs? Are you VC Braggs, Danny? I feel like you are. <laughs>